1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with George R. Boyer about his examination of the transformation of social welfare policy in Britain from the Victorian era to the establishment of the post-war welfare state, entitled The Winding Road to the Welfare State, Economic Insecurity and, and Social Welfare Policy in Britain. George, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to join us today. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. I am an economic historian. I'm a
0: professor of economics and international and comparative labor at Cornell University. I was an undergraduate double major in history and economics, which uh, at at the College of William and Mary, which was odd at the time because most of my history colleagues, history major colleagues were working on very qualitative issues, but I was interested in quantitative history, so I double majored in economics, and then I went to graduate school in economics at the University of Wisconsin and specialized in economic history and then came to Cornell. And I started out being interested in United States economic history, but when I got to Wisconsin, I started gravitating toward Britain, and now I work uh, almost totally on British
1: economic history and labor and welfare issues. Your book addresses a lot of different aspects of the history of Britain in the 19th and 20th century, economic history, of course, but you're also talking about uh, policy history and social history. What led you to undertake this book? Well, if you don't mind, I'll I'll go back
0: (laughs) a bit on this. When I was an undergraduate as a sophomore in a U.S. survey history course, I was assigned to read uh, Jacob Reese's book from 1890 called How the Other Half Lives which is a book about poverty in New York City's Lower East Side in the 1880s and uh, with lots of very interesting photographs. And I just love this book. I had I'd never thought much about poverty issues before, but I loved the book. And, and two years later in economics, in an economics course, I took a course on poverty and social welfare policy, and that further uh, got my interest going. And then in graduate school, I I luckily became a research assistant for Jeff Williamson and Peter Lindert in a large project on British labor markets in the 19th century. And one of the things they had me work on was the standard of living debate, which is this issue of, in the early years of the Industrial Revolution, did workers, in fact, get better off? Did they share the benefits, or to what extent did they share the benefits of industrialization? And at some point in doing that, I came across... A paper by a now deceased professor named Mark Blau called The Myth of the Old Poor Law and the Making of the New, published in 1963. I love this. And as soon as I read that paper, I knew I wanted to work on British social welfare policy. And uh, that's what I've done ever since. So it's it's amazing how one paper can change everything. But Blau's uh, paper
1: for me. I, I, I can definitely relate to that. It's an interesting. Your book is a very interesting one because there is, a, in a sense, a, a, a superficial understanding of the development of welfare policy in the period that you cover. We think of the you know Victorian era. We think of Dickens. We think of the workhouses. We think of the Poor Law, and then we, of course, have uh, the you know what happens in uh, the Liberal governments in in uh, the pre World War One Liberal governments with introduction of national insurance and and the pensions. And then you have the beverage report during uh, the Second World War. And then, of course, uh, the uh, post-war labor governments and the uh, regimes that they create. And uh, superficially, as I was saying, it creates the sense of sort of a a linear development, how you go from A to B to C to D. And yet, as you explain in your book, that is a misconception, that it's a far more complicated picture. I was wondering if you could start by explaining why... That some of that complications exist in terms of our understanding of social welfare policy in the early to mid-19th century.
0: Certainly. And if you don't mind, I'd like to start out just by saying a word about the title. Oh, the reason, One of the reasons I call it the winding road to the welfare state is that in 1943, just after Beveridge's report, a book was published by an American uh, authority on social welfare and professor of social work, Carl Schweinitz, entitled England's road to social security, and many people have talked about this road. And the road aspect suggests what historians call a weak interpretation of history, which is that somehow the past is inevitably progressing towards a goal, and that goal has sometimes in the past been viewed as liberal democracy, maybe enlightenment, but I think it could also be viewed as the welfare state, in that some historians see, as you've mentioned, this progression where you start out with the Poor Law, and the Poor Law seamlessly turns into the Edwardian liberal welfare reforms, which later seamlessly turns into the post-war welfare state. We're always moving upward. There's this wide road ascending, that that the working class is ascending towards social betterment, and the British people look like, and in Schweinitz's book they are, uh, a group of pilgrims being led by William Beveridge heading toward the celestial city of Social Security. Everything is always moving linearly, forward, and upward. The problem with this story is that it leaves out all the messy bits. Uh, The story typically mentions the Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834, which Charles Dickens wrote about in some of his novels and the workhouses and whatever, but it largely ignores the nastiness of the Victorian poor law after that, and in fact the increasing stinginess of the Victorian poor law up until the beginning of the 20th century, And then all of a sudden there's a complete about-face with the liberal welfare reforms, and the government takes more of an interest in the poor, sets up the foundation for what becomes, 30 years later, the British welfare state. So it's important to see, I think it's important to see, that there is nothing inevitable about the development of the post-war welfare state. If you ask... British people, any British person, including the intelligentsia, in the 1880s about what was going on in social welfare policy, none of them would have seen the welfare state coming. Uh, The road from the late 18th century poor law up to welfare state of the 1940s is not a wide and straight thoroughfare. It's a very winding road full of sharp turns and ruts. And the, the main point of the book is to explain that and you ask about the earlier 30s, the the high point of the British Poor Law is the period between around 1795 and 1834. 1795 is typically viewed as a time when welfare spending goes up sharply as a result of uh, food shortages in Britain, which causes food prices to spike, which leads to large demand for relief and a significant increase in welfare spending. Britain's at this point fighting France uh, in uh, the wars of French, the the, the wars sparked by the French Revolution. Then, of course, these turn into the Napoleonic Wars. But in the period between 1795 and 1834, welfare spending is relatively generous. I say relatively because compared to current days, it's completely ungenerous. It's only about two percent, two and a half percent of gross domestic product, whereas today uh, in all Western democracies, it's far higher than that. But it's generous compared to anywhere else in the world. So Britain is the leader in social welfare policy. Mm. And it's it's helping everyone. The welfare state is sort of a, a or sorry, the law is sort of a welfare state in miniature in the sense that it helps the unemployed, It helps the sick, it helps the old, it helps widows, it helps orphans, it helps those who are injured. Uh, And it's all done at the local level. It is financed at the local level. There are parishes in England, of which at this time there were approximately, in England and Wales, approximately 15,000. So if you think of England and Wales as being roughly the size of Alabama... Imagine Alabama being divided up into 15,000 separate administrative units, each of them administering its own poor law, taking care of its own poor, using its own tax money. So it's an odd system. It's very localized. uh, But it's, again, relatively generous. Then 1834 comes along, and the Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834 says Well, it's too generous. It's creating all kinds of disincentive effects for workers. And therefore, what the Poor Law Amendment Act strives to do is to substitute giving people money for relief, so what the British called outdoor relief, giving people money so they live in their own cottages uh, and they're just getting essentially a welfare check, although it's not a check, it's just a bit of cash or an in-kind payment, but replacing that with workhouses with forcing at least the able-bodied to enter workhouses when they get relief uh, in an attempt to make the poor law punitive. And the argument here is simply that there are deserving poor and there are undeserving poor, but many of the commentators of the early 19th century believed that most of the poor were undeserving. And the way you treat the undeserving poor is with the punitive workhouse. You offer them the workhouse because the law says you have to offer people welfare benefits, but you don't have to be nice to them. So you offer them the workhouse, and if they are unwilling to enter the workhouse, they simply take themselves off the relief rolls where they never apply in the first place. And you then pound yourself in the chest, and you say, see, these people were undeserving. If they were truly deserving, if they were truly desperate for this money, they would accept the workhouse. But these are undeserving people, so when you offer them the workhouse, they will simply go away and get a job. The interesting thing about this is no one then ever tries to determine what else happened to these people. They may go away and get jobs, or they may move in with relatives, or they may starve. We don't know. We just know that when you do institute workhouses, that you do see a decline in numbers of people on relief. And which also means, of course, that you see a decline in taxation. So the middle and upper classes taxes decline when you put in a workhouse system. Now, that said, I have to say one other thing, which is, The so-called principles of 1834, this workhouse system, is instituted by law in 1834, but it's not really instituted in fact, in the sense that most of England parishes and poor law unions, at this point after 1834, parishes are grouped into poor law unions, so we go from having 15,000 separate administrative units to having about 580 But these poor law unions are told by the central government in London that they are to use the workhouse for the able-bodied, but they typically do not. And the reason for this is simple. The workhouse costs a lot of money. Workhouses are expensive institutions to run. It is much cheaper to simply give people money and let them live at home than it is to force them into a workhouse. Now, Charles Dickens goes on and on about workhouses in books like Oliver Twist and in some of his essays, and some workhouses were quite nasty. But the notion that every poor person, every person who got poor relief, was forced into a workshop or into a workhouse is simply wrong. Most people, at least through the 1860s, still got what we call outdoor relief. However, the numbers getting relief is much smaller and there still is the threat of the workhouse. Workhouses are built all over Britain, especially in the rural areas and and in London, not as much in some of the industrial cities where they are resisted, but workhouses are built all over England and Wales, and more people are in them than before 1834. So there is a deterrent effect of the workhouse, and spending is reduced, especially for the able-bodied, but it's still the case that most people up through the 1860s are still getting outdoor relief, not workhouse relief. Sorry, that's a very long answer to the question.
1: <laughs> no, it's totally fine. Uh, one of the things that you uh, do in the book is you you don't just focus upon official policy. What you do is you fit it into the world of uh, Victorian uh, Britain. So you're you talk and 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 you and you show why we need to do this. You explain how the uh, policymakers. Envision uh, what they're doing to work, in, or uh, in conjunction with private relief. They understand that there is an interaction taking place, and they are, in effect, do, you know, think, trying to do a form of social engineering, in which they're trying to encourage certain behaviors that would, in effect, play to a lot of these independent private uh, institutions. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that, and and the and the practical effects of that, the, the, you know, the degree to which. Uh, the reality actually met with the intentions of these policies in terms of, you know, filling that gap with having the workers themselves turning to private agencies or creating their own relief? Sure,
0: that that's a great question.
1: Uh, the belief
0: was, of the politicians and political economists and others who supported the workhouse system, the belief was that workers earned enough money to protect themselves against economic insecurity. The key issue here is economic insecurity. Bad things happen, and everyone admits that. The politicians, the political economists, whatever, admit that bad things happen to people. They lose their jobs. Uh, A firm shuts down for a while. A firm goes on short time and cuts hours. A firm cuts wages. A worker gets sick and can't work, or gets injured on the job, or gets old, or... The breadwinner dies and someone else has to to collect money. But what they believe is that the workers should be responsible, self-respecting people and taking care of themselves. The mid-Victorian era is an era of self-help. Indeed, in 1859, Samuel Smiles publishes the first real self-help book with the great title of Self-Help. He later uh, publishes a book called Thrift, And other books like this. And his argument is, and the argument of these mid Victorian reformers is that workers own enough or earn enough to take care of themselves. What they should be doing is making use of savings banks, which exist in Britain. There are trustee savings banks and post office savings banks, making use of savings banks by every week or every fortnight depositing money in the bank. To save for a rainy day, and also by joining mutual insurance societies called in Britain friendly societies, such as the Manchester Oddfellows and the Foresters, uh, and groups like that. And these are organizations that you join, you pay a weekly benefit to, and then if you are sick and unable to work, you get benefits back. Now, Some of these private organizations, some of these friendly societies, certainly in the short run before the 1850s, some of these are purely burial societies. So if you die, your wife has enough money to give you a proper burial. Some of them provide sickness benefits. Of course, if you're in one that provides sickness benefits, it's going to cost you a bit more. And sickness benefits, meaning if you are sick and unable to work, you are paid a weekly benefit from the organization and a few of them not that many uh provide old age benefits uh what they call superannuation benefits so that uh, and and these are typically about half the size of a weekly sickness benefit so if you have been a member for x number of years and x usually at least 10 sometimes it's more than that but if you've been a member for several years and you are deemed unfit to work anymore because of old age, you get uh, a pension. It's not large, but it's typically enough to keep you from having to apply for poor relief. So the theory is that workers who are now not given generous and easily available poor relief will change their behavior. They will join savings banks, then deposit money in savings banks, they would join friendly societies and they will protect themselves. Now, there's two problems with this. One problem is friendly societies do not offer unemployment benefits. The problem with unemployment is, with unemployment, you want to know why the person is unemployed, whether it's their own fault or whether it's not, and you want to know if they're actively searching for work there are what we economists call moral hazard problems. Friendly societies have great trouble dealing with these problems, and almost no friendly societies offer unemployment benefits. Now, just to go sideways for a second, starting in the 1850s, a few trade unions, such as the amalgamated engineers and the amalgamated carpenters and joiners, start offering their workers essentially friendly society benefits, and one of the things they offer is unemployment benefits. But throughout the entire 19th century, never much more than 10% of the workforce, and usually less than that, is eligible for unemployment benefits. So that's one problem with mutual insurance. The other problem is that the bottom one-third or so of the working class simply can't afford them. If you look at the aggregate data, and and there's always problems with looking at aggregate data, but if you look at the aggregate data and you're a member of one of these groups that is promoting self-help, you're going to say, oh, it's a great success. Fewer people are on poor relief, and more and more and more people are joining friendly societies, which is true, and more and more people are putting money in savings banks, which is also true. But if you look at these numbers more disaggregated, you see that For the friendly societies, about the bottom third of the working class is not in them. And that is, unskilled workers are rarely members of friendly societies, and in particular, friendly societies that pay sickness benefits. Some are in burial organizations. And many, even semi-skilled workers, can't afford to be in a friendly society. The other problem, of course, with friendly societies is you have to keep your payments up. You make payments week by week or month by month, And if you miss several weeks or months in a row because you're unemployed or whatever, you can be simply taken off the rolls. So you could join a friendly society as a 25-year-old and, for whatever reason, not be in it when you're 40 and you really start needing it. And then the issue with savings banks. With savings banks, when you look at the data, it looks like 80 or more percent of the working class has a savings account. And that probably is correct. However, when you look at how much money they have in these savings accounts, it's typically quite small. The average amount of money that a working-class person had in a savings account up through the late 19th century is less than five pounds, five British pounds, which is basically less than two and a half to four weeks' earnings, depending on uh, what you're making. So you can protect yourself for very short periods of time against unexpected income loss. But it's only for short periods of time. So if you're laid off in the downturn of 1840 to 42 in England, or if you lose your job during the Lancashire Cotton Famine, or if you're sick and you can't work for a month, you're in trouble. And this is the problem with the private system. The poor, the people who really need welfare, who really need public assistance, cannot afford to protect themselves with private assistance. Now, highly skilled manual workers can. They do join friendly societies. They do join trade unions that offer benefits. And they are largely able to protect themselves. So by the mid to late 19th century, you don't see many, say, machinists or carpenters or uh, printers who are applying for poor relief. What you see are lower skilled workers of which there are large numbers. So in the building trades, in the construction industry, you see large numbers of low skilled workers. You see painters and you see unskilled laborers. So bricklayers helpers and carpenters helpers. You don't see the bricklayers of the carpenters, but you see their helpers and you see the painters. They are forced onto the poor law. Uh, and of course they are then viewed by the uh, middle class and and the political economists and politicians, whatever, as undeserving, while they didn't save, they're thriftless, they're lazy, they're drunk, or their wife is drunk. And that's simply not fair. These people cannot afford the assistance. They're not members of these organizations because they can't afford to be members of these organizations. Again, another long answer. (laughs)
1: Uh, in that answer, though, you you actually highlighted a a point that I was thinking about as I was reading the book, which is it was interesting in a sense about how this was an issue that from a policy perspective, the Victorians approach with a different set of uh, using a different set of data. And you described it earlier. They're thinking in terms of taxes. They're thinking in terms of Broad numbers uh, uh on the rolls, the number of people using the workhouses and I was thinking about that when I get uh, when I uh, got to the chapter uh where you're talking about the uh the, the shift that takes place at the end of the 19th century where you start having people like Tree who are publishing and 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 uh and and I think it's Brooks who are publishing the, these uh studies which are which are which are genuinely shocking to many Victorians who, who have never really, you know, been cognizant They they look at these numbers, it's like, well, these numbers say things are going okay. You know, our, our numbers are down, we, we're seeing this decline. And all of a sudden, no, there's this enormous uh, 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 amount of poverty that is, it's in plain sight, but 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 now it's being quantified. And it's, and with, you know, the World War, the awareness as to just how unfit the working classes are to uh, serve uh, queen and country, there's this awareness that this has, you know, Genuine consequences for the nation as a whole. Yes, indeed. Uh, one of the things that ha- one of the things that's
0: interesting here is that in the 1870s, the Poor Law becomes extremely nasty in the sense that while we've had the 1834 Poor Law Report, which, and then the the Poor Law Amendment Act, which which leads to uh, the workhouse system and what have you, the so called principles of 1834, as I mentioned earlier, aren't really enforced. Then in the 1870s, they aren't forced all of a sudden through something called the crusade against out-relief, where you see poor law unions throughout England and Wales all of a sudden becoming stingier, forcing more people able-bodied and non-able-bodied, including the elderly, into workhouses, denying more and more people outdoor relief. And this goes on uh, up until the beginning of the 20th century. But about 15 years after the crusade against out-relief gets started at this time of Great nastiness in the poor law and numbers on relief falling sharply. You have Charles Booth coming along. And Charles Booth was a Liverpool shipowner who ended up moving to London, or uh, he owned a shipping firm, moved to London and using his own money did a massive study on poverty in London. And it was entitled Life and Labor of the People of London. He started out publishing in the Journal of the Royal Statistical Society and then published a, a multi-volume work on this. And what he found was that approximately 30% of the population of London was living in poverty. And people are absolutely stunned by this. Uh, because the poor law figures suggest that maybe 3 or 4% of the population is getting relief. And he's saying the number of people in poverty is 9 or 10 times what the poor law data are telling us. So people came up with ideas. Some people, of course, believed him. Some people said, well, this is crazy, because the whole notion of a poverty line, which Booth kind of advanced, although it's really invented by Roundtree, but but Booth basically says if your income is below 18 shillings a week, you are very poor. And if it's between 18 and 21 shillings a week, 20 shillings is a pound, uh, you are poor. And he's calling all these people in poverty. Well, some people said, well, that's a silly thing. Uh, you you can't come up with these things. And others said, well, the whole notion of poverty is bizarre because what Booth is saying is that these people are poor for economic reasons. And in fact, what's going on is that they are poor because of moral reasons. They are inadequate human beings. So they might have bad jobs, but that's their own fault. Or they might be casual laborers, but that's their own fault. Uh The other story that some people said was, well, London is different than everywhere else. And it's partly different because of the docks. And dock labor is notoriously casual. And uh, Booth is finding enormous poverty rates among dock workers and people in the east end of London. And so, you know, while Booth's work stunned people, they they forgot about it after a bit. Or if they didn't forget about it, they, they didn't do anything about it. And then in 1901, Seabohm Roundtree comes along. Uh, those of you who are fans of Kit Kats or Rolos, uh, Roundtree is from the family that turned into Roundtree Macintosh and uh, invented the Kit Kat and the Rollo. Uh, he was from a family of cocoa manufacturers in York, England. But Roundtree, with his own money, did a study of poverty in York. York is not a port. And New York is not a massive city; it had on the order of eighty or ninety thousand people, as opposed to well over a million. But Roundtree found that twenty, some twenty-seven, whatever percent of York's popu- of York's working class population was living in poverty. Ten uh, percent was living in primary poverty, which means that they didn't make enough money to get by at even a very low budget, a very meager budget. Others were in what he called secondary poverty, which meant they were misspending their income. Now, they could misspend their income on alcohol. They could misspend it on tobacco. They could misspend it on books. But it meant that they weren't spending all their money on basic necessities. Uh, and he admitted that his primary poverty line is extremely spartan, and it basically requires a family to be incredibly good at marshalling its resources and putting everything in to just getting by. But then, as you mentioned, the thing that 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 comes out at the same time as Roundtree, and which is also incredibly shocking to the British people, is during the Boer War, uh, the war in South Africa, about 30% of British volunteers, British recruits for the Boer War, were deemed physically unfit for service. And this was absolutely stunning. So we have on top of Roundtree demonstrating with house-to-house survey methods that working-class poverty is quite high in York with this notion that we have people who are so physically unfit that the Army won't take them. And you put this together, and one of the things that both Roundtree and the government said about the Roundtree for his data and the government said for the data they reported, they had an interdepartmental committee on physical deterioration, which I think is a wonderful title. (laughs) But the one of the things they say is, you know, even if you, even if you don't care about this from a humanist standpoint, even if you don't care about your neighbors, you as a member of the British Empire should really be worried because there are other industrialized countries out there, like Germany, like the United States, like Belgium, like France. What if their people are healthier than ours? I, we are producing a class of working class people who are simply unfit, unfit to fight, but also physically unfit enough that they're going to be relatively unproductive. So if the Germans or the Americans seem to be more productive than us, maybe the reason is that a large chunk of our working class is physically unfit and therefore inefficient workers. And this changes public opinion. All of a sudden, these people who had believed for decades that most of the poor were undeserving and that therefore we needed an extraordinarily strict welfare system that kept people off the rolls, all of a sudden they start to think, "Well, well, maybe that isn't right. Maybe in fact we've gone too far. And Booth and Roundtree both demonstrate in certain parts of their cities, Booth in certain parishes in London like Bethnal Green and St. George's in the East, round tree for the whole city of York, that if you look at the people on poor relief in those districts, and you compare that with the people found to be in poverty, there's enormous differentials, which means that large numbers of people who are in poverty are either not applying for poor relief because of the stigma attached to it after the crusade against out-relief in the 1870s, or they're applying for poor relief and being rejected as not poor enough by the local officials. But whichever case it is, it's starting to look very inhumane. And this is one of the things that leads to the liberal welfare reforms uh, that come in in 1906 to 1911. And here, by the way, liberal stands for the Liberal Party. It's not liberal as in liberal versus conservative. Uh, It's the Liberal Party in Britain, which at the time was one of the two major parties, along with the Conservative Party. Now, I can go on and talk about the politics of this if you want. I don't know if that's where you're going or not.
1: Well, actually, I was I was going to uh, lead to that because, as you explained in in, uh, the book, that it's again, it's not linear. That when uh, the Liberals win this big victory over the Unionists in 1905, in the the 1905 election, they, they form their government. And as uh, you explain, it's still not as, as an issue that they're campaigning on. It, so what, why exactly do they then? It, it's, it's clearly more than just the discovery that 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 they haven't been uh, uh, you know addressing this issue of poverty. What else has been going on that leads them to adopt the policies? And how does that then shape the the uh, policies that they then uh, push through Parliament? Well, as you mentioned, there, there's a major
0: election in 1906, and it is a liberal landslide. The conservatives are slaughtered, and the, liberal comes in, the liberals come into power with a majority of like 230-odd seats. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's a huge majority. The Liberal Party has not campaigned for social welfare reform in the 1906 election. However, there is a new party on the block, and that new party is Labor. The Labor Party uh, comes from, if you go back to the 1880s with the Second Reform Act, sorry, the Third Reform Act of 1884, the Third Reform Act gives the vote, the franchise, to most working-class males. Now, in 1867, with the Second Reform Act, highly skilled working-class males, especially in urban areas, have been given the vote already. In 1884, the vote is extended to most working-class males, including agricultural workers and uh, miners. So now the working class is a majority of the electorate. Now, it's only men, and it's not all men at that, but they are a majority of the electorate. In 1893, there's something called the Independent Labor Party, which is formed, which is not quite the same as the Labor Party, but it, it is uh a party of labor, and it is a socialist party, and around the turn of the century, the ILP, the Independent Labor Party, merges with some other socialist organizations and forms what becomes known as the Labor Party. And the Labor Party contests the 1906 election and wins, I believe it's 29 seats. They contest over 50 districts. They win, again, I think 29 seats, up from two before, and they are campaigning for welfare reform, for social welfare policies. Now, even with that, at the beginning of the liberal government, they don't do much. In 1906, 1907, they passed some laws uh, for children's school lunches and for health for children, health care for school children. But they lose a series of what the British call by-elections. If someone steps down from their seat or if they die or if they can be incapacitated, There are elections for these individual seats as opposed to a general election. And there's a series of by-elections that the liberals do very badly in. And public opinion, to the extent that it's known at the time, seems to be going against the liberals again. So the liberal party, in particular certain members of the liberal party, believe that it becomes imperative for the party to become the party of the working class. Two of the people who argue this are David Lloyd George, and Winston Churchill. Now, Winston Churchill's an interesting character. He was brought up a conservative. Uh, he read Roundtree's Poverty, A Study of Town Life, Roundtree's Study of York. He read it a couple years after it came out, and it apparently had a huge effect on him. And he shifted parties, and shifted from the conservatives to the liberal party, and is in the liberal government, Uh, that comes in in 1906. Now, he doesn't have a great position in 1906, but when there's a shift in 1908 and Lloyd George becomes Chancellor of the Exchequer, like our Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Winston Churchill becomes President of the Board of Trade, and the two of them set up these liberal welfare reforms. First, the Old Age Pension Act of 1908, which gives all poor old people pensions. They're not great, but they keep poor people out of workhouses. And Lloyd George uh, becomes worshipped for this. There are people who believe he must be a member of the House of Lords, and his name is not, in fact, Lloyd George, but Lord George, (laughs) and that he is a saint from heaven. Uh, And there are stories of people going to collect their pension checks or pension monies, which they got from the post office, and tears running down their faces because they knew they were being given five shillings a week, and they had no idea why. But they were incredibly grateful. Uh, so the Liberal Party passes the Old Age Pension Act in 1908, it passes the National Insurance Act in 1911, which has national unemployment insurance in only a limited number of industries, but it is national unemployment insurance and national sickness insurance. Again, not health insurance as we think of it in the sense of the British Health Service, but health insurance as sickness insurance, so if you're sick, you get paid when you miss work. Uh... The Old Age Pension Act is completely non-contributory. It comes purely out of general taxation, so workers are not contributing to it. National insurance is paid for partly by money being taken out of workers' wage packets, partly by employer contributions uh, on behalf of their workers, and partly by the state. So it's a, a tripartite system. But the view of Lloyd George and Churchill was that welfare policies were the right thing to do, people were hurting, and if you read some of Churchill's speeches, they're absolutely incredible. He uh, refers to uh, economic insecurity as that great and hideous evil, and he talks about how important it is to help the poor, and David Lloyd George does the same thing. So they are humanists in that sense, but they are also hardcore party men, and they write in their private correspondence to other members of the party, that this is a good thing for the liberals. We need to do this to stave off the rise of the Labor Party, because if we don't do it, the Labor Party could replace us as the party of the working man, and when that happens, we could become a third party. Now, what's interesting about this is that the Old Age Pension Act as I mentioned, is incredibly popular because it's non-contributory. Workers don't pay for it. I mean, they pay for it in the sense that they pay some taxes. They pay excise taxes, and that goes partly to fund it. But they don't really realize that. So they view this as something they're not paying for, and they love it. National insurance, they don't love as much. They love the benefits. Obviously, they love the benefits, but they wish they were non-contributory. They don't like that their disposable income has gone down somewhat because uh, their wage packet uh, is is being taxed to partially pay for the system. So this is largely a political move by Lloyd George uh, Churchill and others in the Liberal Party to uh, woo the working class voters, uh, and it only partially succeeds. And by the 1920s, uh, the Liberal Party is a definite third party, and it still exists, and it has very, very few sh- seats in Parliament. If you follow the voting on Brexit, you'll see, and if you follow it by party, you'll see how few liberals, they're now called Liberal Democrats, but how few Liberal Democrats there are. So this this is largely a, a political economy uh, story. It doesn't necessarily work, but uh, that's the story. Now, the, that's explaining what's going on right before the First World War. The First World War begins in 1914. The Liberal Party is in power from 1906 onwards, and all these policies are passed between 1906 and 1911. They also, by the way, have trade boards which set up minimum wages for men and women in certain occupations. What's interesting is the minimum wages differ by occupation, and within occupations, they differ by men and women. Men always have higher minimum wages than women, so they're nothing like our national blanket minimum wage uh, but they are a minimum wage plan. And they set up labor exchanges to make it easier to find jobs. So the liberal
1: welfare reforms do a lot of good things. But as you explain in the book, they have not yet superseded the poor law. So all this is happening in at the same time as the poor law is still in effect. And this is, in effect, the system that's in place when Britain enters the interwar era. How effective is it in responding to the issues of poverty and and the problems of social welfare that Britain is encountering during this period where they are facing issues of, of economic decline, they're, they're, they're facing uh, you know, constrained budgets, and of course then in, after, uh, in, starting around 1930, you have the onset of the Great Depression.
0: Well, yes, but it, it, it's even worse than that in the sense that in Britain, Britain slides into a slump in 1921, three years after the war ends and is in a slump from 1921 up through the beginning of World War II, which, of course, for Britain is in September of 1939, shortly after Germany invades Poland. Uh, The social insurance system that is set up by the liberal welfare reforms you're absolutely right, it's a bit of a hodgepodge, and it still has the poor law in it, in that instead of one system, like the welfare state, we have unemployment is its own system. Unemployment insurance. sickness insurance is its own system. Old age insurance is its own system. Workers' comp is its own system. Uh, Widows and orphans benefits its own system. And then under all this, so that's the safety net. That's the first level of the safety net. Under all that is the poor law, which is the safety net of the safety net. People who fall through the first level are caught by the poor law. The interesting thing about this is that when the liberal welfare reforms are adopted, when unemployment insurance is adopted, sickness insurance, old age pensions, etc., they're all set up outside of the poor law. They're all meant to have no stigma, and they're basically meant to lead to the withering away of poor relief. And if you look at Britain right before all these things are passed, there is very nicely the British government did a pauper census in 1906. Uh, right before the old age pension and national insurance. If you look at who's getting poor relief, it's largely old people. And the theory was the poor law is simply going to wither away. But the theory was not based on a notion that Britain was going to go into this horrific slump starting in 1921. So what happens beginning in 1921 is unemployment rates go into double digits, and they remain in double digits up through... 1938. Unemployment is very high. It gets worse a bit once the United States goes into the Great Depression. They have this bit on top, what the British call the slump, which comes on top of the already depressed economy. And Britain is a wreck. Now, as you mentioned, I should say that the reason the economy becomes depressed is that the British industrial economy was largely an export based economy before 1914, based largely on coal textiles, cotton and wool, iron and steel, and shipbuilding. All of these sectors are hurt very badly in the interwar era. One of the things that happens after World War I is the globalization of Europe and the West and the United States involved in much of the world uh, that basically is built up between 1870 and, 1870 and 1914 collapses uh, with the end of the war in the sense that tariff barriers are put up all over the place, Uh, immigration barriers are put up all over the place. We go from having a globalized economy back to uh, a system where everyone's just taking care of their own. And Britain is hurt very badly by this because Britain's economy was largely export-oriented. We do have new industries coming up, uh, motor vehicles, electrification, Uh, rayon and other chemical industries. But they're largely located in the south of England. The unemployment is largely in the north uh, and in South Wales and in West Scotland and in Northern Ireland, uh, where unemployment rates are horrific. And the liberal welfare reforms simply can't cope with them. Uh, The system of unemployment is the, the best system to look at. Unemployment was meant to be something that would pay for itself, i.e. people would pay into the system. In good years, you'd you'd save up money, you'd build up a bit of a war chest. In bad years, that would have to be spent out on benefits. No one ever expected you could have 18 straight bad years or that the unemployment rate would be nearly as high as it was. So the system starts running into problems. And at the same time, it's clear that workers need benefits. So the, the unemployment insurance system at first has no Uh, benefits for dependents. So if if two people are laid off who are the same age and had the same job, uh, but one of them has eight children and the other has no children, they would get exactly the same benefits, which may be fine for the person with no children and uh, horrifically inadequate for the person with eight children. So they put in dependents benefits in the 20s, but that's still not enough. And it's the same with sickness benefits. It's the same with old age benefits. The British government central government cannot afford to raise the benefits enough to take care of everyone. So we see people who are collecting unemployment insurance benefits and poor relief at the same time. Sickness insurance benefits and poor relief at the same time and old age pensions and poor relief at the same time. All of a sudden there is a a revival of the poor law and the notion that people shouldn't be relieved in workhouses is thrown out the window. It becomes clear to everyone that these people are poor through no fault of their own. They are poor because the economy is a wreck, and so they are granted outdoor relief, which means that those localities in the north, in South Wales, in uh, parts of Scotland, around Glasgow and Northern Ireland, those localities with high levels of unemployment all of a sudden have their taxes going through the roof. So the system uh, is a mess. But even though the system is a mess, and it's a mess because largely because of this unprecedented economic shock that no one expected coming, but even with that, it's still the case that we don't see a collapse in the health of the working class. Infant mortality rates do not go way up. Life expectancy does not go way down. The heights of children continues to go up. It appears that even though it's very inadequate, the system, this, this system that I call a safety net of many colors because it's got all these different policies, but the system of all these independent policies with the poor law underneath them is able to protect the workers. Now, are, are the workers in good economic shape? Certainly not. Are they happy that they're living through the slump? Of course not. But they're not starving either. And we don't, again, see these horrific biological impacts of rising infant mortality, uh, falling health and and what have you so the system is not perfect it's got holes all over the place but it does work to a degree it's criticized a lot both by contemporaries and by historians it is hard
1: for me to imagine at that time, that the government could have done much better. It's what fascinated me about uh, that part of your book is how you identify these inadequacies. you identify that that it's functioning. As you just explained, it it, it is preventing the the worst catastrophes from taking place. But they don't really address the flaws of it until you get to World War II with the beverage report. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about uh, how it was that the beverage report came about and how it sought to address uh, and, and and change the existing system in Britain. So World War One again starts in September of 1939. World War II. Uh, pardon? You said World War I, sorry.
0: Uh, World War II. Oh, sorry. World War II starts in September of 1939. Uh, and Germany invades the Low Countries and France in uh, May of 1940. And of course, they are very successful unlike in World War One, when they're stalemated, they uh, essentially force the British to evacuate the continent. The, the French army collapses. The British evacuate at Dunkirk in the miracle of Dunkirk and are pulled back into Britain. Uh, and then we have the Blitz beginning with uh, the bombing of British cities. An amazing thing happens at this time period in 1940 and 41, the period after the evacuation of Denmark and during the Blitz, the British people who are basically now the only ones left fighting Hitler because uh, the Germans have yet to invade the Soviet Union, Uh, the Americans are not in the war, the French are out of the war. Things are looking terrible for the British, and yet what do they do? All of a sudden, shortly after the evacuation of Denmark of 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 Dunkirk, (laughs) there is a call for social policy or what we're going to do after we win the war. And there is a call for a new Britain, or as they often say, a new Jerusalem. And they call it a new Jerusalem because of William Blake's poem, uh, England's Green and Pleasant Land, where he says, I will not cease from mental flight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. And what's amazing is the war is going on. It looks very bad for Britain, and yet this is what they're talking about. And in the summer of 1941, the government appoints an interdepartmental committee uh, chaired by William Beveridge to survey Britain's social insurance policies and to recommend revisions because they are being criticized for being a hodgepodge and, and what have you. What happens is is quite interesting. Uh, William Beveridge is the father of the welfare state. He's in many ways a very good man, but he also appears to be somewhat of an arrogant bully in the sense that once the uh, committee meets, of which Beveridge is chair, but he's by no means the only person, he shows up with an outline of what he wants to do, and essentially doesn't listen to other people. And what he wants to do is not simply coordinating what they've got. It's to create an entire new system, a new comprehensive and coordinated system of social insurance, where... Everyone is a member. This is not just for the working class or the poor. It is a universal system. Uh, Everyone contributes into the system, all at the exact same rate. It's a flat rate contribution. Everyone gets benefits, again, at the exact same rate. Uh, And everyone is covered. And if you're unemployed, if you're sick, if you're disabled, if you're old, everyone gets the same benefits. Everyone is treated the same. He also wants to institute a system of children's allowances so that people who have larger families get more money. And this is not it's not you get more money if you're sick or, or unemployed or something. This is everyone gets these allowances. So everyone gets should get, according to Beveridge, a weekly or monthly check from the government for each child after the first. He also wants a national health service. He claims there are five giant evils and uh it is his job or Britain's job to eliminate these five giant evils. The report completely stuns, or or sorry, the the, the pre-report that Beveridge writes and beverages Commons completely stunned the rest of the committee. They go back to their seniors in the government, and everyone says, "Don't sign it." This is published in 1942, December of 1942. It's it's called Social Insurance and Allied Services. But everyone calls it the beverage report, in that it is a governmental report signed by one man. No one else was allowed to sign it, so it is the beverage plan, uh, and it is set up in such a way. It, it is the welfare state. I mean, it, it, it's not a law; it's just a it's just a plan. But it basically lays out the welfare state. Winston Churchill, who is by now a conservative and who is, of course, at this point, prime minister, is. Surprised and somewhat, uh, well, more than somewhat, he is worried about this because, Churchill says, we can't be promising Eldorados or utopias to our people. We're in the middle of a war, and it looks like we're going to win the war, but it's not clear when the war is going to end. It's not clear how much the war is going to cost, and it's not clear what Britain's national income is going to be at the end. So we can't go around promising people the moon when we don't know how much money we're going to have. Now, he says this, but then when the beverage report is debated in Parliament in the spring of 1943, uh, the government is very, you know, well, you know, this is a good idea, we should do this, but we should leave it to the post-war government to do because we don't know how much money we're going to have, and we need to be realistic, and they're hammered, and there are by-elections, and the by-elections all go against that. They don't go against the conservatives and that people aren't in in, in case it's a coalition government. But the the people are not voted out, but their majorities shrink considerably in these by-elections. And it becomes clear even to Churchill that the government has to start telling people they will do more. And there are a series of government white papers uh, during the war yet uh, on social insurance, on health insurance, and on uh, unemployment, which are laying out uh, policies that can be done. Beveridge, by the way, is, is thereafter ignored by the government. He's very upset about it. And in his memoirs, he talks about how there's essentially a gag order that no member of the government can speak to him. And he's very upset about this. But finally, the war ends in Europe in 1945, in, in May of 1945. Shortly after the war ends, Churchill calls for a national election to be held on July 5th. And in that national election, now Churchill is now running. So we're back to having a party system. Churchill is now running. Uh, as head of the Conservative Party. And Churchill has, of course, won the war. He's the great man in Britain, maybe the great man in the world at this point. Uh, and he's viewed as, as the person who has won World War II. And yet he gets slaughtered in the election. This is a labor landslide. And the argument for this, the reasons for this, seem to be that Churchill and the Conservatives, while they claim they would get, they would bring social policies, better social policies, to Britain after the war. They had not completely jumped on the beverage bandwagon. And the Labour Party had. And the Labour Party said, we are going to give you the beverage report. We are going to institute this. And they win. It appears that many of the British voters thought the Conservatives were a good party and Churchill was a good man for fighting the war. But uh, they wanted somebody else for fighting the peace. And so Labour comes in. And immediately puts the wealth starts putting the welfare state in place. In 1946, they adopt a national insurance act, which, which is essentially the beverage Report. In 1946, they uh, adopt national health insurance, and shortly thereafter, they adopt national assistance, which replaces the Poor Law. Now they adopt them, but they don't come into effect until July 5, 1948. Everything is operational on July 5, 1948, the third anniversary of their victory. And in one of the British newspapers, that was a Monday, one of the British newspapers that came out two days earlier announced in the paper, when you wake up on Monday, you will be living in a new Britain. And the belief was, we have now solved the problem of economic insecurity. We have these policies in place. On top of that, the Labour Party has vowed to maintain unemployment, basically at a very low level. Uh, They vowed to, to maintain full employment. And the the belief is the welfare state and government macroeconomic policies are going to solve these problems. And welfare will become, (coughs) welfare will still exist, but poverty and economic security will largely go away. Uh, Roundtree comes back in his 80s in 1951 and does a study with a guy named Blavis called, uh, well, it's a third social survey of York, and finds that it appears that is correct, Unemployment is way down, but also uh, poverty is way down. Economic insecurity is way down. And it appears that while the welfare state has not eliminated poverty and insecurity, it has largely done away with it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, more recent studies by uh, Tony Atkinson and by Tim Hatton and Roy Bailey, uh, with the data, Roundtree's data is largely still available, the individual household data uh, the 1951 household data. Unfortunately, none of the earlier data is available. Well, that's not true. There, there is some, there's a lot of data available for London 1929-30, but most of the social surveys that were done, the data has been lost. But using Roundtree's data, Atkinson and Manhattan and Bailey have shown that, in fact, there were lots of mistakes made in this analysis. Roundtree was, after all, in his 80s. And poverty was much higher than thought. It, it was not nearly as high as it was in the interwar level. The welfare state had reduced poverty to much lower lower levels, but it hadn't eliminated the problem. And then uh, Abel Smith and Townsend in a book called The Poor and the Poorest showed similar things in the 1960s using somewhat different data. So the sad thing is that it's uh, it's become clear that while the welfare state has done many, many good things, it has not eliminated poverty or economic insecurity and that economic insecurity is a very hard thing to kill, uh, which is unfortunate, but it is still with us today. And in countries like Britain and the U.S., it actually appears to be growing, uh, especially in the U.S. because of problems with health care uh, and, uh, and old age.
1: Hmm. So it's quite unfortunate. Hmm. Indeed. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? <laughs>
0: Well, I'm somewhat between projects, partly because I've become a, a an interim associate dean at the ILR School here at Cornell. Congratulations. But, uh, that won't last forever. And I, I have become, I'm still interested in the same periods, but I've become interested in, in a couple things. One is what I call precursors to the gig economy. The gig economy, of course, is a hot topic now, but the notion that uh, labor markets have functioned so well in the past, and now they've gone crazy. Well, they functioned well maybe from 1950 through the 1970s, but they didn't function that well in the 19th century. And if you look at 19th century labor markets, there are examples of what one might call gig economies all over the place in large numbers, especially in places like London. So I'm interested in studying that. I'm also interested in looking back at something I worked on in my dissertation on the, the old Poor Law, which is what I call the uh, the first great welfare debate, in the sense that starting around 1795 and going up about a decade in the period from 1795 till the early years of the 19th century, there is a huge debate in Britain on welfare that is participated in by William Pitt, the politician, Edmund Burke, the great politician. Uh, Thomas Malthus, Frederick Morton Eden, uh, and various others just debating why is welfare spending going up? Because we see a big increase between 1795 and 1803, uh, a big increase in welfare spending. And the question is, what's going on and why? And uh, people are using the same arguments that I've talked about, but this is the beginning of those arguments. And I think Since we have all these welfare debates now, and we've had them in the 1980s, 1990s in the U.S., we had them in Britain under Thatcher in the 80s, it would be interesting to look at the first great welfare debate uh, and see what people are arguing and what data they're using uh,
1: in their arguments. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. That sounds like a fascinating project. I hope we can have you back when uh, you've uh, completed the work on it. I hope I do complete it at some (laughs) point. Well, uh, George, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks a lot.